Hey, how's it going? This is Craig Cannon, and you're listening to Y Combinator's podcast. Today's episode is with Michael Seibel. Michael's a partner and the CEO of YC. He co-founded Justin TV, which was in the winter 2007 batch, and SocialCam, which was in the winter 2012 batch. In this episode, Michael and I go over five of his essays. They're linked up in the show notes, and they are Why Should I Start a Startup? One Order of Operations for Starting a Startup, The Real Product Market Fit, Users You Don't Want, and Why Does Your Company Deserve More Money? If you have comments, you can reach out to Michael on Twitter at MWSeibel. All right, here we go. All right, Michael Seibel. So today uh, we're going to do something different yep. and talk about a few of the essays you've worked on in the past. I think these are maybe the past two years. Yes. So the first one is, why should I start a startup? You start this essay by saying, a lot of people ask themselves this question. They often mull over one of the uh, one or more of the following facts. One, the vast majority of startups are not successful. Two, for talented technical people, it's relatively easy to get a job and make a large salary. And three, large companies offer opportunities to work on very difficult problems that only often occur at scale. My answer to why you should start a startup is simple. There's a certain type of person who only works at their peak capacity when there is no predictable path to follow. The odds of success are low and they have to talk to, uh, and they have to take personal responsibility for failure. The opposite of most jobs at a large company. Yes. Okay. <laughs> Why did you write this essay? <laughs> so I think that, um, there are two reasons. Um, one, I talk to a lot of smart technical people. Yeah who I think sometimes feel like they should start a startup, but they're conflicted because yeah. they either don't know if they have a good idea, don't have an idea, don't have a team. And I think they're really trying to figure out, like, what should I do with my life? You know, like, what, what should my real career path be? And when I first started giving people advice, I think that I really assumed that because you could start a startup, you should start a startup. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you have the money to afford, if you have the time, if you have the ability, you should be doing it. I quickly realized working at YC, that's a bad idea. (laughs) And I think what I quickly realized is that there's probably like three sets of people. Okay. There's probably the set of people who the only thing they can really do is work in a radically entrepreneurial job. Yeah. Like literally like they will not enjoy their life inside of a big company, inside of big bureaucracy. Like, and I think like back in the day, like those are the kinds of people who start small businesses. Uh-huh. And so, um, there's that type of people and like they're relatively few and far between. Like I wouldn't be surprised if that's only like 1% of the population. Yeah. Um, the second group of people are the people who are on the fence. Mm-hmm. They want to be really challenged by work. But they can easily apply themselves in either a entrepreneurial world or in a um, big company world. Um, and I think those people are the ones where like they have some choices to make, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, I think a lot of people confuse themselves for this group. Um, when in reality, I think this group is also probably pretty small. And then there's the last group. Pretty those small. Are, how, how small? Like I bet, I bet one percent. Like I bet there's okay, only so really we're talking like, 2% like yeah, yeah. So far, yeah. Like yeah, yeah, I think yeah. it's a really small group who can actually be equally capable in either in either role as gotcha. a founder or as a really effective person inside of a big company. Uh-huh. Um, and I think you do see this. Like I think you do see like founders who get acquired who are actually really functional inside of big companies and vice versa, mm-hmm. right? Execs who go on start companies and they do well. 
um, but few and far between. I think the last group and by far the biggest group are the people who um, are going to operate best within a large company. Um, and like the mindset of this type of person is the type of person, at least from what I've seen, is like they want a system to optimize. Like they want an existing system, an existing path, an existing set of rules mm. that they can operate and play play by. And like what's interesting is that like almost everything up to this point in your life kind of has that, yeah. right? Like kindergarten through 12 has this, even college has this, and they kind of want to continue that. Mm-hmm. Someone else defines what's an A and what's an F, and then I optimize, right? Um, and I don't think that there's any like moral judgment to be passed. Like I think that like if most people didn't feel that way, the world wouldn't work. So <laughs> it's like a good thing. Um, but there's a smug group of people who feel like I want to make the rules. Yeah. I don't want to follow them. Yeah. Um, and so I think that like when someone's thinking about whether they start a startup, they should really be intellectually honest with themselves about which of these groups they're in. And anyone who's trying to kind of guilt trip them into one group or another, right? Yeah. Like it goes both ways. Like I in the past would guilt trip people to do a found, to be a founder. Yep. A lot of people, parents will guilt trip them into being a big company or being a doctor or yada, yada, yada. I just think like this is one of these things where you have to actually have some personal, uh, you have to go deep and really understand. Yeah. Did you ever read the book, The E-Myth? No, I haven't. Have you heard no. of this book? No, no, no. Um, so I read it in college, so it's been a while. <laughs> but basically the concept was a lot of people who are, you could say craftsmen. Yep. So like in our context, like a developer. Yep. Often think that they want to become entrepreneurs so mm. they could do just their craft in just the way they want to. But they don't realize that as soon as they enter the entrepreneurial realm, yeah. most of their jobs no longer that. <laughs> and so I think, I think this is a common thing. Yeah, and it's yeah, why yeah. these, uh, indie hackers are so, uh, like people love them so much. It's an interesting point. Cause like artists and craftsmen doesn't equal founder, isn't it? And even more so, what's so sad is that as a founder, almost by definition, the thing that you're good at is the thing that you stop doing. Oh yeah. Um, and like you have to keep on doing things that you suck at. Yeah. <laughs> and be yeah. totally okay with it. Yeah. No, it's rare that the founder who's really good at something can like delegate so well that the thing they love is still the thing they do. Yeah. Forever. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Really, really, really hard. So, okay. You, you get to this at the end. Um, what are the questions, you know, that we've had some time since you wrote this one. Yep. So what, what are the questions that you ask yourself when you have to decide if you're in that, you know, 2% of people? Um, I can answer this for myself better. The questions that I asked myself was, where am I at my best? Mm-hmm. And where do I feel like I'm organically applying effort? Like I'm 100% self-motivated. And like I think anyone who is 22 to 25 has enough life experience to know. And certainly anyone who's 30 or 30 plus definitely has enough life experience to know you know, in what types of situations am I just naturally extremely motivated? Um, the other kind of question I'd ask, which is uh, like an extension of this, is like if I think about the moments where I outperformed. So not only was I really extremely motivated, but actually like delivered the best results. I did the best. Where does that happen? Mm-hmm. And like when I think about those moments for myself – like they never really happened in the truly structured things. Like in the K to 12 setting, I did fine all that stuff. Of course, right? I did all the classes and got all the grades, but it wasn't when I was like really like kicking it into high gear. Yeah. So I think if you're like super honest with like, when do you really kick it into high gear? Um, 
that's when like you can start asking this question of yourself like, okay, who, who should I be? Hmm. Um, and, and what career track should I take? Hmm. Um, I think that like one tricky bit here is you have to be really careful about taking advice from biased people. So I eat everyone. Yeah. Right. <laughs> like when I was giving founders this advice originally, I was so biased. I was like, well, I'm at YC. I want you to be a founder. Like you should be a founder. Right. I was giving you advice. I was, you know, previously giving advice that was very self-serving. I think that like, um, a lot of young people are looking for n- advice givers and are not doing a good job of identifying bias. And so I see a lot of people who are, generally believing the information that they get from either their peers or from companies that they work at. And like they don't realize those people are biased. You know, perfect example, my brother's at MIT right now. The most prestigious jobs um, are jobs at Facebook and Google. Mm-hmm. And that prestige has actually very little to do with any facts. Like it actually reminds me of like when I was in high school and like the crew that I was in, the like job everyone wanted to do was be a lawyer. And because we were all like government kids, like everyone would be a lawyer. But then if you ask people, like, do you actually want to do the work of a lawyer every day? They'd be like, no, of course not, right? Yeah, yeah. I and just so, make a bunch of money and yeah, I'm a lawyer. Yeah. And like, I want to like, you know, change the laws and I want to like debate the constitution and write all these things. It's like, yeah, but do you actually want to do the lawyer work? <laughs> You're like describing model UN, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That was a model UN in a T, right? Yeah. Um, and so I think like similarly when I talk to my brother and I like go to MIT, I, I meet all these people who have this – created this imaginary world where when they get to go to Google, they're going to be on the machine learning team and they're going to have high impact from day one. And like needless to say, Google loves to pitch this story, mm-hmm. right? And mm-hmm. like people love to eat it. But the reality is when you're on the other side, that's often very rarely the case. Yeah. And so – um what I would what I would encourage people to do, having been an offender myself, is to just really look for the bias in the person who's presenting you with options and advice. Like understand where their biases are and understand that like Google is operating a machine and the machine has multiple purposes. One purpose is to get the smartest people to work on the hardest tasks. Mm-hmm. But the other purpose is to get people who are smart and talented so that they're not working for Google's competitors. And then the last purpose is to get people who are smart and talented so they're not creating companies that will compete with Google. Yeah. And everyone understands the first one and they don't think about two and three. No, not at all. And also when when I find college kids, and I'm, I'm totally a offender of this as well, uh, they seek people for advice until the person gives them advice that corroborates with what they want to hear. Yep. And yep. so you just look around and you're like, mm. yep. sometimes it feels like you got, you got to do some living. <laughs> like you can only listen to advice for so long. Well, and I think the peer advice thing is actually really tricky. It's yeah. really hard to go from, like I'd argue that like at a, a, in school, especially like K to 12, a lot of peer advice is very helpful. Yeah. Like I learned how to apply to a good school from my peers. Like my parents hadn't done it in years. Right. Yeah. Um, I learned which classes to take, which teachers were good, right? I, like my peers were this like great intelligence source for so long. And then it turns out that like yeah. with career advice, they almost are they're horrible. And I think it's so hard to go from like a situation where someone goes from a good source of information to a bad source of information so fast. 
But like, that's what happens in college. Like your peers are no longer, cause like, I think what the reality is, is that like in many ways, there's a simple track and a simple set of, um, rails yeah. all the way up through college. Of course. And then college, it goes from like one track to a thousand tracks. Yeah. And like your peers don't even know anything about any of the 1,000 tracks. So suddenly they're like not the experts anymore. Suddenly the kid who's like one year ahead of you really just doesn't actually know anything more than you do. No. Um, but like your whole old system is still there. Your old system of like relying on that is still there. And it's – what's funny is that big companies know this. Like that's the cool thing is like oh, yeah. they are actually relying on you having poor sources of information. Like I, I – Everything that a big company does to attract a college kid is 100% uh, orchestrated. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, there, there's an information gap there. Yes. Yeah. And that's how the business works. <laughs> uh, which, I mean, it's fine. Again, like, you can go and have fun at these jobs. You can go and feel purposeful. Well, I'd argue, like, for most people, that is the job they should take. Yeah. Um, but, like, man, if you're one of those different people, don't yeah. believe the hype. I mean, this is kind of harsh and, uh, yeah, I don't know if it's 100% accurate, but my impression is that the world just kind of tends toward wanting you to be average. Yep. You ask someone for advice, they're like, these are the known outcomes based on all the inputs you just gave me. You should go yeah. work at this company. And I wouldn't say average. I would say like wants to put you in a box. Like sure. It could be a very productive box, right? It could be like ridiculously productive box, but like a well – uh, laid out, well understood yeah. box. Like they yeah. want to plug you in somewhere and move on. Yeah. Um, and that doesn't work for some people. Yeah. Yeah. Or more importantly, like for some people, that's not how you get their best. For some people, it's almost a guarantee you won't get their best in that environment. And so, yeah. So what's so weird is like, we're not talking about like, do you see a good business opportunity or do you see, do you, do you have like this like burning problem? Like those things are important, but man, if you are not, irrationally motivated to do startups and be entrepreneurial. Like it's going to be frustrating and you're not going to understand the risk reward. Yeah. Because like from a pure money-making perspective, it's probably better to take the job at Google. It's definitely safer. Definitely safer. Yeah. But from a like, will I enjoy my life perspective? Like that's the one where like for some people, absolutely not. Right. Yeah. But on the other hand, I just say, try it out. See how you feel. Like you can do plenty of projects in college. You can. You can see how it works. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. Cool. One order of operations for starting a startup. More often than not, when I talk to a talented technical person who's thinking about becoming a founder, their number one blocker is that they don't have an idea. At some point during their formative years, they learn that every great startup started with a great idea, and if the idea isn't amazing, usually as judged by peers, parents, or other people with little startup experience, the startup will fail. <laughs> All right. Why'd you I write think I wrote one? that. <laughs> I, think, I think you did write that one. I think I've read that before. <laughs> I wrote this because this is the number one excuse I hear from people who um, want to start a startup. Mm-hmm. Like, and, and it's so interesting to me i think that like there are all of these old entrepreneurial rules and business best practices that that i think that people just want to apply hand in glove to a new industry Mm -hmm. and um i think tech startups might be a little different um and so interestingly enough like i don't even think people are really taught how to find ideas so like I feel as though people are sitting there saying I don't have an idea and they don't even really understand a process by which to get one. Yeah. 
they think they think that it's supposed to like happen organically. Like it's like almost like out of the cartoons where like a light bulb goes off the top of your head and like that's not really how it works. And so I, what I wanted to do with this essay was give people a framework that they could try to use to come up with an idea. So instead of this being a passive process, it can be active process. I think one of the things that like might be hard for people to see is like now being in this world for so long, I have a lot of friends who mm-hmm. wanted to do a startup and didn't know what they wanted to do mm-hmm. and then came up with an idea and were very successful. And so like I've seen this happen with a lot of people. And so that's kind of where I've come up with this thought. Mm-hmm. So you break it out into one, two, three, four, uh, several steps. So yep. this is, I'm going to outline it and then we can explain. So the order of operations, here's where I'd start. Is there any particular problem that you're passionate about? The next step. Once you decide on a problem, find some pre- friends and brainstorm potential solutions to the problem. Mm-hmm. The next step. At this point, the most important thing uh, to make that spark turn into a fire is to work together and build and launch an MVP. Yes. And that's basically it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's not that complex. No. It's hard, no. but it's not that complex. <laughs> no, it's not. So, so let's start at the beginning. Uh, particular passion. What problem you're passionate about? Um, so I think oftentimes, I'll give you the conversation that I had with, um, with a founder. I was at a conference over the weekend called Afrotech and there mm-hmm. are a bunch of young people who wanted to start companies there. And this woman walked up to me and she said, I have an idea. Um, I'm doing a startup that helps other startups. And, um, I call this like a meta startup and, and this is startups that I kind of don't like because it's like, in some ways, I think it's like a cop out. It's like, hey, I'm giving, I want to help give other startups advice and guidance, but I haven't really done a startup myself. Right, and like, yeah. it's, I don't know. It's just, it's, it's, it's not great. And so I dug in. I was like, okay, so what's a problem that you have? And, um, it was interesting. So the woman was a mother and she said, one of the problems I have is that, um, I, there are a lot of places when I go somewhere new, there are a lot of places where I don't know if I can use my stroller with my baby because it's like hard to get around or if I'm walking on the street, does it have, you know, the proper sidewalks and so on and so forth. So I'd love like some type of product that would like tell me, um, what path I should take that's like stroller friendly. Mm -hmm. And I said to her, okay, that's, we're getting somewhere, right? (laughs) Now we're not, we're, we're not in like this meta idea. Now we're actually solving a problem directly. Great. But I, I asked her, hey, can you judge this by two um, things first? One, how frequent is this problem? Mm-hmm. And she said, well, actually, when I'm in an area that I know, then I know where to walk. I know how to do it. It's not that frequent. And how intense is this problem? It's like, well, you know, if I have to go over a curb or something, you know, it's like it's a it's pain, but it's not like, you know, intense. Yeah. So then I was like, okay. What if you could start a problem that was addressing one of the top three problems in your life? What would it be? And you know what she said? She said affordable childcare. Hmm. I was like, you know what? A lot of people have that problem. That's a, problem. <laughs> like, yeah, that's yeah, a yeah. big problem. Yeah. And like, I felt my like douchebag investor like <laughs> light go up. It's like, yes, you should do that. Like that yeah. is a problem. Like even if you half solve that problem, you're going to be wildly successful. Like there are gajillions of people who have that problem. It's ridiculously intense. It's like, and it was like interesting because in such a weird way, I feel like she had somehow condensed all of the startup advice that she'd been given and everything she read to go to this like wrong place 
when I just asked her, what's the problem in your life? Mm. And she almost immediately got to like a place that yeah. could create real value. Yeah. Now, like how should she solve that problem? Okay. Yes. That's another question. But damn, like it's a personal problem she has and she sure as hell knows that if she makes a product, is it helping her? Yeah. And at least if it's helping her, she knows it's like halfway decent. So like that, I got to a really exciting place by just digging into like, what sucks for you? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think everyone can do that exercise. Yeah. And I think that like that exercise can be informed by your work life or your personal life. So many startups I see were created because they were doing something at work and they were like, this sucks. Why do I have to keep on doing this? Yeah. I'm going to make this thing and then sell it to my job so that no one has to do this ever again. Right. Um, so it can apply either way. Right. And this is a very easy way to get people to pay you. Yeah. Whereas doing things like strapping a webcam to your head, not <laughs> as obvious. <laughs> Not as obvious of a problem. Pretty, pretty non-obvious. <laughs> <laughs> so, all right. So, so you step, go there. Yeah. yeah. So once you find a problem, find some friends and brainstorm potential solutions to the problem. So here's the trick. Um, you don't need to skip to a solution too early. Mm-hmm. And your thought process should be whatever solution I come up with is probably going to be wrong. So what my solution really is, is a first hypothesis. And basically it's like, Imagine I'm trying to, um, I don't know, like redo some famous science experiment. Like I'm trying to figure out the speed of gravity or something, mm-hmm. right? Um, I first have to start with a hypothesis, then test, and then repeat, 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 and play to my answer. Okay. So um, I don't need to know the answer up front. Like that's not the goal. Mm-hmm. If you have a big enough problem, mm-hmm. like trust that like – if you come up with anything resembling an answer in a reasonable period of time, years, yeah. you have a big business. Yeah. So instead of thinking, okay, let me come up with my idea how to solve it, I think the more important thing is to start talking to other people about it. Because I think that the number one thing you have to do to create a company or one of the top three is to have some co-founders. And <laughs> it's really helpful to figure out who are the types of people who you can talk to about something and you riff well. You you iterate each other's ideas. There's sometimes people you brainstorm with and like they say, like I say, Craig, wouldn't it be cool if the sky is red? And Craig says no. And that's the end of the brainstorm, yeah. right? And it's like, well, we might not have a best founder relationship, <laughs> right? It, as opposed to like, well, wouldn't it be cool if the sky was red? And Craig says, you know, we can't make the sky red, but what happens if we like tint all the windows in the house red so you can make it look like the sky's red? Right. It's like, oh, uh, right, uh, yeah, right? You know, like we're, we're moving, right? So – you want to start having those conversations with people that you like. Mm-hmm. Um, people, if you're not technical, people who are technical, um, people who you just respect their intelligence. And ideally together, you start coming up with an idea. And what's cool about that is that if you come up with that idea together, um, everyone you've been talking to feels some ownership of the idea. Yeah. And that helps kind of light that flame. Yeah. Yeah. It's dangerous to be married to a solution. Yeah. Yes. That was a real problem. All right. So at this point, the most important thing is to turn that spark into a fire and work together to build an MVP. Boom. So biggest mistake that people make at this point is to think that the things they need to do is like now I feel like some like weird phantom MBA starts whispering in their ear and it's like you need to incorporate, you need to raise money, you need to da 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 And it's like – Kick that person out. That person, like, that's not, that's not what you need to do. 
can you just build a simple V1 of the product? Can you build the simplest V1, even if it's just an Excel spreadsheet, something powered by an Excel spreadsheet? Mm-hmm. Give it a try. Like the way to get that team even more excited is to try something. Yeah. And like oftentimes I see people kind of get lost in that legal or that fundraising world and they never even got to give their thing a try. You don't need, uh, you don't need like bank accounts to give something a try. You don't need an incorporation to give something a try for the most part. There's some ideas you do, but like for the most part, you don't. Um, and a way that you can really get that team solidified is just to get some kind of MVP and get like one customer, two customers. Mm-hmm. Um, this is one, the final test on like, Hey, can we work together well? Right. Mm-hmm. And two, man, it amps up the excitement a lot. And so that when you have to go through some of the bullshit of incorporation and stuff yeah. or fundraising, right? The excitement level's high. Yeah. Um, also third, it gives you leverage. Like if you actually have something with a couple customers, then like investors are far more interested to like to talk to you than if you just have an idea. Especially people who are on the fence about working with you. Yes. Yeah. I mean, these are yes. all, all of these things that you're saying, these are all excuses you create because it's easier than working on the actual problem. <laughs> <laughs> well, oh, yes, for some people, but I also think it's for some people, it's what they think is the right path. It's like, it's like, I actually think that some people, some people are being, I don't want to say lazy, but some people are being, I don't know. Um, uh, not some people are, are are kind of being disingenuous in this process, but I think other people actually think, oh no, the right thing to do is actually to come up with an idea, fundraise, outsource an MVP, and then hire a team. Like I think that like some people think that's the right thing to do, and it's like eh, the, the harder. That's a harder path. Okay, like, you don't have to do that. Well, my failure mode is different then. Um, <laughs> all right, so then uh, you wrap this essay up with uh, a couple things. The two failed orders of operations. Well, these are two of many, I suppose. Yes. <laughs> um, so one, come up with an idea and then pitch to investors. Yes. Two, I have an idea but can't write code and none of my co-founders can either. Yeah. So um, we're in a time where there are a lot of startups. Yeah. And there's um, – unfortunately, your people that you're pitching, if they're good, they're getting pitched by a lot of people. So you need to bring some real fire to that meeting. Yeah. And uh, a good deck is no longer good enough. Um, I would argue that back in the day, like in the 90s, it was so expensive to get software made and hosted and online and get users that like a good deck or actually back then it was like a 100-page business plan, like that's all you could get. No. That's all you could do without money. No. Um, we're not there now. And so um, – you're not bringing the fire if you just bring in an idea. Now, some people can raise on just an idea, right? And if you're one of those lucky people, that's great. But like, I don't know, like I'd rather be good than lucky. <laughs> um, yeah. In terms of, you know, no technical co-founders, like this is a constant issue. And I'm surprised by this. Like I talked to a friend the other day who is thinking about starting something and doesn't have a technical co-founder yet. And even she was a little concerned about getting one, even though she has kind of been in the tech startup mm-hmm. world. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, I had to encourage her. I had to tell her, no, you can. Like, you can do this. Like, it's not it's, – it's, it's not – not only is this not going to be that hard, it's that, like, it's probably going to be easier than outsourcing it. <laughs> um, the one failure mode that I see a lot is that I see people who can raise a little bit of money mm-hmm. – go down the outsourcing route and believe that they are 
progressing. They believe yeah. that the thing is moving forward. And what they don't realize is that for the most part, they're going to need to iterate anything that's created by those outsourcers over and over and over and over again. And it gets pretty expensive pretty fast. And so the failure mode that I see so constantly is outsourcing, iterating with that outsourcer to you run out of money. Yeah. You haven't figured things out yet. And so you have to go to an investor and say, well, I don't have anything. I need more money. And like, that's death. And like, what's so sad about that death is that like, you've been kind of walking that path the whole time, but often you don't realize it to the very end and after you spent money. And like, sometimes it's people's own money. Like they do their savings, yeah, yeah. they hand their savings the to these people. And like, I don't think the outsourcing folks are, are bad or morally, morally wrong. Um, I just think that like, people should take the hustle that they have and apply it to the number one problem, which is like, it just turns out that getting a technical co-founder tends to be cheaper than paying an outsourcer. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess, you know, to push back, if you had someone outsource something and then that got you a couple customers, then you found a co-founder, that's a great outcome. Well, it's interesting because I think that a lot of people go into the outsourcing um, route with that yeah. um, intention. Uh-huh. But the thing that they don't realize is that like, they didn't feel comfortable going and find a technical co-founder now yeah. when they don't have any traction and they don't have a product, right? Most likely the outcome is the outsourcer will give them a shitty product, a shitty V1. Totally. Yep. They won't have any users then. Yeah. And now they'll go after a technical co-founder with a shitty product and no users and less money. Like, right. like and, and they want to give the co-founder 10%. Yeah. yeah like which, they're not actually happening. in a better position. Like, yeah. So it's like, like, yes, I think that there, like one, and I, and I, and I mentioned the essay, there are counter examples. Like there are people who do yeah. go from, uh, contractor to big company, but it's just, I would argue it's a harder path mm-hmm. and it's a, um, path that's much more likely to lose you a lot of money. Your own money. Your own money. The real product market fit. Yes. This was a good one. Uh, not that the other ones aren't great. Yeah. Um, all right. I often talk to founders who believe they've found product market fit when they haven't. This is a huge problem because they start hiring people, increasing burn, and optimizing their product before they've actually discovered what needs to be built. I'm writing this post to help you understand when you've really found product market fit. To start, read Mark Andreessen's On Product Market Fit for Startups. It has been the single most influential post for me as an entrepreneur and was the first and, uh, and it was the first time I ever read the term. Here's how he defines the term. The customers are buying the product just as fast as you can make it, or usage usage is growing just as fast as you can add more servers. Money from customers is piling up in your company checking account. You're hiring sales and customer support staff as fast as you can. So why do most people think they're there when they're not? One, it's intellectually convenient to. I think that a lot of founders are really excited at the prospect of company building. Uh And they think that company building is what creates success. And by company building, I mean like hiring employees and having a great culture and, you know, getting an office and having management and so on and so forth. And they are not real with themselves that like the real challenge is to solve the problem. Yeah. And the company building happens for the most part after you figure out how to solve the problem, not before. Um, I hear this term product market fit so often. And I have to tell you like, 
98% of the time it's used incorrectly. And like what's so frustrating is that like people almost act like it's an undefined or like flexibly defined term. <laughs> and it's like totally not. It's like saying that like, oh yeah, like green, blue, yellow, we could call all of those orange. Yeah. Like it's okay. Like we'll just call them orange. It's different like, for every company. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's like it's your interpretation of it. It's like, no, it's yeah. not. It's, it's like, it's not the case. Like there's a defined term. Just like, make up another term if you want to mean something else. Yeah, yeah. So I think like, the most common way it's mistaken is like, it's weird because it sounds so close, but it's not. It's, I built the thing that customers want. Right. And like, what's hilarious is like, product market fit is what happens after you built the things that customers want. It turns out the only way you know you've built something the customers want is because they're using it in an explosive and destructive way. And like people want to separate these two concepts. It's like so amazing. It's like so like you can see intellectually why. It's just so much easier to be able to look at your thing and say, this is what customers want. Right. And not have to really have any customers. Oh yeah, totally. It's easier to say that. And so um man, people really just want to separate those two things out. And it's like if you are not getting explosive usage, you do not have what customers want. Yeah. Um or there aren't that many customers, in which case you don't have a big business. No. Um, and so I think the, the awful reality is like the vast majority of founders, the vast majority of YC founders even never find product market fit ever. I would argue that like more acquisitions than you might know mm. are of companies that did not find product market fit. Um, once you find product market fit, I almost say it's like, it's your company to fuck up. Like, it's almost like this is going to work unless you screw it up. Yeah. Whereas like pre-product market fit, there's all this stuff you need to do to even see if there can be something there. Right. And you really don't know. Post-product market fit, it's like if you execute, you get there. Pre-product market fit, you can execute great and yeah. never have anything. And, and moreover, you can still have customers. Yep. You can still have growth. Yep. If you're pre-product. Yes, market. yes, yes, yes. It's not like when I go from zero customers to one customer, yeah. I have not hit product market. Like, <laughs> like, I think yeah. that Mark does a good job of defining it because it's experiential. Right. I think if you tried to define it any other way, people would find loopholes. I mean, they clearly have already found loopholes, but like, yeah, yeah. it's like, is the growth killing you? Like, if, if I were to extract what the meaning of this sentence, like, is the growth almost killing you? Yeah. And is it profitable? <laughs> like people always want to forget the second one, right? Like money is piling up in the chink account. That is by definition profit. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Like literally there are so many companies who are like, the growth is killing us. Right. And I'm like, oh, oh, show me, explain. And they're like, and they're scaling negative margins. Exactly. They're saying, Hey, Craig, how about you, um, pay 75 cents and I give you a dollar worth of value. Uh, yeah, uh, Craig, make that trade seventeen times an hour. <laughs> like, yeah, no, I, I love that the PV quote where it's like they figure it out before you. Yeah, that you're giving, <laughs> <laughs> you're like, oh, yeah. let's figure it out. And well, because you're just burning VC money or your own money. Yes, yeah, yeah. the customer, the customer is a nose for those types of deals. Because <laughs> like, if you have the problem, like you really understand the the, the value of the solution. So, um, what's funny to me is that. You know, oftentimes founders will want to try to reduce this. Like the, I get this question so often. It's yeah. like, should I optimize for growth? Should I optimize for retention or should I optimize for profitability? And my answer is always the same. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> like, like, yeah. how, what makes you think that 
building a successful company is a single variable problem. Like, like, how could that be the case? Yeah. <laughs> it's clearly not the case. Um, clearly well, not the case. especially in the, in the venture paradigm. Yes, yes, yes. For, for a tech startup. Yes. It's clearly yeah. not the case. Like there's clearly multiple variables here. And, you know, one of the things we try to talk to people, we, we often, if you're charging your customer, we try to talk to you about revenue. Yeah. And the reason why is that like, in many cases, like revenue that you keep is as close as we can get to a single metric. But like, even that is not perfect. Like you really want to know, like what's your, what percentage of your revenue are you losing every month? You really want to know, like how much does it cost you to get that revenue? Like you really want to know, like how satisfied are your customers? Like, like you need to know those other stats to really know. And yeah. so, yeah, product market fit, like I wish more comfortable. It's like, like, I talk about pre-product market fit as just being in the suck. It's just like you're just in a river of crap and you're not enjoying your life. Yeah. Like, and unfortunately, I think that you, you, every startup, I almost imagine this isn't the case, but I almost imagine that there's like a predetermined amount of time you have to live there until you figure out how to get out. Yeah. And like a lot of founders just want to cheat. <laughs> and like a lot of founders just like, I want to get out by cheating. Like I just want to pretend like I'm not in here and like build a nice house or I just want to like do something that's completely unprofitable. And so I can pretend to be out of here. And it's just like, you, you can't pretend your way out of product market fit. Like it just yeah. does not work. You have to be comfortable. You have to be so passionate about the people you're working with and or the problem that you're solving mm-hmm. that you are comfortable failing at it for a while. Did you guys hit it at social cam? Absolutely not. So here's a perfect example. Social cam over the course of Four months, got 16 million downloads, got one-eighth of every single person on Facebook to watch at least one video on our platform over the course of three to four months. Um, wouldn't that be like almost the definition of product market fit? We certainly were dying in the traffic. We shut off like half the half the world to not couldn't use the product because we were like, we can't do it. Absolutely not. Um, for our product, one, we had um, – no monetization. We probably could have figured out monetization, but at that point, no monetization. Yeah. Um, two more importantly, we had horrible retention. <laughs> Absolutely horrible retention. Like, if you came and downloaded the app, the chances that you were using that app 10 days later were basically zero. If you watched a video, the chances that you'd watch it five more videos that week, very low. And like, it was interesting because it was like, we had an exit. Yeah. We had tons of growth. We for a while were top five in the app store, yet not product market fit. Yeah. Um, I'd even argue, I mean, if you look back at Justin TV, right? Justin TV by let's say 2000 and let's think 10. So we started in 2006 by 2010. Let me sure I have those dates right. I think that's correct. Yeah. We made eight million dollars in revenue, mm-hmm. one million in profit. With approximately 30 million monthly viewers on the product. And we were not at product market fit. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> and so it's like, it's yeah, this, the, it, it, like, it is hard. Like, and, and the reason why and, and for the Justin TV case was that we didn't have a repeatable engine to create growth. Like that 300 million monthly uniques, we couldn't make that number go up. 
Um, and then the second thing was that, unfortunately, we were we had tons of copyrighted content on the site. Yeah. And so it wasn't – we weren't able to reliably monetize that over time. Right. Um, and so it was like it, – it's funny because I can't imagine how many pitches that I gave <laughs> trying to present that as a good business when like in my heart I knew it wasn't a good business. You yeah. know what I mean? Like – and like it wasn't until we actually – um found Twitch and found gamers, did we actually find something that had this like repeatable machine that both spit out more users and more money and retention. And like, what was so interesting is that like we'd solved all the technology problems at Justin TV. Well, like clearly the market does not care what you have behind the hood. No, like, no, no, no. Like we had all the live video streaming yeah, and we had all the chat. Dude. We had everything like, no. like that was, I mean, let's be clear necessary but not sufficient (laughs) like we never could have done it without that stuff but it was not sufficient um, at all and like man what'd that take that took it took six years for us to have a hint that that's what the customer base was right because then like the the suck period with twitch as game streaming how long did that go for before not very long not very long you know why it was interesting it didn't go for very long because everything else was already the table was set. You're kind of in place. For yeah, the we had people. We had all the um, technology we needed. We had money because we were running profitably. Uh, so yeah. like it was all like like all of the, the the table was set, and then bam, the food arrived. Like everyone was seated. Every the table was set. Bam, the food arrived. The meal happened. But, but like it, we were waiting at the table for like six years. <laughs> yeah, dude. Yeah, that's so we like good. built the table. We set the, table. <laughs> <laughs> we the door open. We sent invites out. No yeah. one cared. Because even but like if you started Twitch in 2006, probably wouldn't have worked. Like, you don't know. No, I don't think it would have worked in 2006. I think looking back, um, uh, <laughs> silly little things matter. Um, uh, one of them was uh, webcams. Yeah. Like webcams went from being something you had to buy extra yeah. to something that were built into every laptop. Like, and it was like little things like that can change things. I think that though, had we been talking to our users more, we could have gotten there sooner. Like mm-hmm. I think we could have gotten there by like 2008, 2009. Hmm. Um, but you know, we didn't die. That was, you know, yeah. Didn't even, die. Have another shot. That's a big takeaway. Yeah. Yeah, which is kind of a separate thing, probably a separate essay, but like learning when you should have quit, maybe. Like some people do hold on to things. Some people hold on to things. It's funny. Like I, I see it two ways. Some people hold on to things. Um, on the flip side, though, man, there are still some companies who – like some companies take a long time. Yeah, you know, totally. like There are some peers of ours who like now are really doing well but just took even longer than we did. And so, um, man, there, there is a lot, like if you're willing to put in the time and grind it out, like, um, every year you don't not die, like, like your chances of being successful go up. Yeah. And then some companies sell too early and they could have been so cool. And then they die within big companies. Yeah. That happens. People are trying to get paid. That happens too. Users you don't want. Yeah, this I one was this contentious. One. Yeah. This was fun. Yeah. <laughs> Let's bring it back. <laughs> <laughs> All right. When you're just getting started, many startups will take every user they can get. They have a strong idea of a problem, and they want to attract as many users with that problem as possible. Unfortunately, when you open up the barn doors, you get all sorts of people with all sorts of problems. Some of them will try to hijack your product to solve a problem you didn't intend to solve. By and large, these hijackers are users you do not want. 
When has this happened to you? Uh, <laughs> I mean, Justin TV was by definition hijacked. Yeah. Like we built a product to allow people to live stream their lives. And within a year, it was being used to stream copyrighted content around the world. <laughs> like absolutely the definition <laughs> of hijacked product. Um, and, and, and what's interesting is that I'm a little afraid of my phrasing here. I, I, I wish I didn't say that these hijack users are not, are, are not users you want. Cause it turns out that like sometimes they are. Yeah. It turns out that like, you know, the reason why we even had an inkling to do Twitch was because some percentage of the hijacked users were video gamers. And like, it turns out that that could have been a much bigger community if we, if we helped it and then eventually became one. So this kind of like users using your product for a whole variety of things. I like to think about it more like on a spectrum. Mm-hmm. Like there's the user who's using your product as intended. Yeah. Great. Makes you feel good. Maybe there's a business there. Maybe there isn't, right? There's the user who's using your product in interesting ways with potential. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Study those users. Those users are very important. Yeah. Video gamers are just in TV. There are users who are using your product um, with ways that it's extremely clear to you that there isn't long-term value even if there is short-term value, right? I'd argue that those were the copper and streamers mm-hmm. on Justin TV. Mm-hmm. There was short-term value because we could monetize with ads and so on and so forth, but long-term we weren't really creating value. Yeah. And then they're like hijack users. I'd argue like those are users who are using your product um, and they're creating no value and they're probably actively de- like decreasing your value. Mm-hmm. They're, they're, they're harming your network, right? Yeah. And like for us, you know, that would be people like, you know, some people streamed like pretty horrible things on Justin TV, right? And like that was, that was not good. And so, um, what's interesting is that now when I talk to startups at YC, um, they don't know how to recognize these hijack users and just kick them out. Mm. And like they kind of like no one, no one talks about these people. They always talk about like everyone before them. Yeah. Right. Which like those are users that have some value and they're talking about the hijack users and it's like, if you can identify the hijack users, you need to kick them out. Like they're actually going to hurt you more than they're going to help you. Mm-hmm. And so um, I think this is important. And, and I think that like it's not that the hijack users have like bad intentions even. No. Um, they can. Some do. But some, it's just they want to use your product to do what they want to do. And that is literally going to hurt your business. There are some things that like if people do on your platform, it hurts your business. Um, how would you, how would you classify someone who just takes up all of the customer support time? Um, it depends on how much revenue they're generating. Yeah. Right. Like I'd argue that if they are generating enough revenue to justify that support time, great. Yeah. If you have a free product, <laughs> not so much. Yeah. Not so much probably. Right. Um, especially if you're not learning, if they're taking up a bunch of your support time, but you're learning and like you're actually improving your product because of it. Great. Um, but like, for example, like, let's say I'll create like a hypothetical example on yeah. top of my head, right? Imagine that um, in the beginning of Airbnb, um, someone wanted to use um, Airbnb to host like drug parties, right? Like illegal drug parties, like crack parties. Um, and they thought of these Airbnbs as like mobile crack dens, <laughs> right? Um well, let's, let's think about this for a second. Like, so on one hand, right? Well, they are paying 
Yeah, right. they're, they're paying for the big apartments. They're paying for the nice places, yeah. right? Yeah, they're, they're, they got money, yeah. right? Interesting. On the other hand, they're probably destroying those apartments, <laughs> <laughs> doing something highly illegal, yeah. getting the police called on them, like da 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 da, right? Yeah. And it's like these are hijack users. Like these are not the types of people you want. And like you can be a hijack user, and there's still some positive. Yeah. Um, but it's just like, if there's like way too much negative, it's not worth the positive, mm-hmm. you know? And that's actually where I see a lot. I actually hmm. see it a lot where it's like the hijack user is paying. So you feel bad. Cause when the hijack user is not paying, usually you feel less just bad kicking them out. out. Yeah, yes. Yeah. When they're paying, you're like, well, but they're paying. Right. And, and you, and it's like, nah, no, yeah. <laughs> you just still kick them out. Yeah. Especially in the context of like, you have these metrics you want to hit and you're like, even yeah. during my season. Yeah. Like, yes. Right. Oh my God. Like, like this is real. This is stuff. It's like, nah, nah, nah. shut it down. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and you end it in a, in a nice clean way by saying, by focusing on solving one problem really well, you're betting on making a small amount of people very happy. If you let any user that walks in the door, the product roadmap, you're going to end up doing a shitty job at <laughs> half solving a lot of problems. Yeah. I mean, to be clear with this ending, my whole goal is that, like like I said, there's like this spectrum of potentially useful users. Yeah. My whole goal is like, don't let the hijack users steer your product roadmap. Totally. Like the – it's really – totally okay if you want to explore some of those use cases that are not the use case that you thought that are still use cases that like could could be good for you uh-huh. then it's a totally okay to explore to experiment so on and so forth but it's like don't let your app like don't let the crack den guys on airbnb <laughs> control the product roadmap for airbnb right and suggest the features that they want like that's right, right, not, right. not where you want to go i mean this is sort of the mentality it's like at the end of the day, you have to have some opinion about your product. Yeah. You can't just be like, I don't know, like the market's going to take it wherever, the yeah. customers take it wherever. Yes. Um, it's really hard to build product without some opinion. Yeah. Why does your company deserve more money? Yes. Dun, dun. The hardest conversation I have to have with the founder is when they've spent their $1 to $2 million angel round but haven't found product market fit. Unfortunately, I have to ask them a very unforgiving question. Why does your company deserve more money? Yeah. This is so hard. This is really hard for YC companies. Yeah. Like in one way, we try to make YC companies feel very special. And certainly the investing community often makes YC companies feel really special. But man, isn't it weird that someone who's given $2 million to do something and doesn't succeed thinks, you know what? I need another $2 million. Like, you know, it's like part of me just wants to like bring people back to the real world. You know, it's like... (laughs) You know, maybe you do, right? Maybe the next $2 million is going to get, make it work, right? Maybe. I'm not willing to say it won't, but I think we should just like, it's certainly a lot easier to raise that money if you've done something for the first $2 million, (laughs) you know? And I think sometimes founders, once again, sometimes founders kind of cargo cult. Like Mm -hmm. they think, oh, well, we've, we have this team. We built a team. Right. We have this product, right? We got a cool office. Yeah. We have a cool office. Like, look at what we've done. Right. And it's no. like, nobody's grading you on those things. <laughs> like, those are means to an end, not an end. Like, you can't be like, Oh, I, I'm an NFL coach and look, we have a team. We have this amazing stadium. Right. You should, you should renew me. Right. And it's like, well, the record of the team is like zero wins. Yeah, like, yeah, like, yeah. like, you can't get another contract if you have no wins, you know? Yeah. Moreover, if you, I mean, you might have all the MVPs, but if they can't play together, you know? Then no wins, no right? Wins. And so I think that like people like to confuse means for ends because like yeah. means are a lot easier to get. I can go out and get an office. I can go out and hire, right? 
Solving people's problems, that's hard. Yeah. So um, a lot of the time I have to have these conversations with founders where I'm just like, look, like, what is an alternative path? Like, if you don't really deserve money right now, what is an alternative path? And like the sad but true fact is cutting burn and trying to get to break even is more often than not the right thing to do if you haven't hit product market fit for that first one to two million dollars. More often, that's what's going to create that leverage. You get to break even and that gives you time to figure things out. You're, you're like, like we said before, like not having product market fit it doesn't mean you're not growing. It doesn't mm-hmm. mean you're not generating revenue, right? It just means that you're not taken off. Yeah. And oftentimes that just means you need more time. But like asking investors for that time is oftentimes way less fruitful than just cutting burn and giving yourself that time with the revenue that you're generating. Exactly. Um, and like, man, I learned this the hard way at Justin TV. Like I, Sometimes I just think of Justin TV, I just had myself completely fooled. Like literally, I just – like I was out there pitching a site that like f- half of the usage was spreading copper and content. It was like a public site. Like like any investor could just before the meeting go to our website and like in three clicks see content we didn't have the rights to. And then I would go in and try to pitch them on how it was going to be a billion-dollar business, right? Like – I don't even know how I did it looking yeah. back, right? Like, you know, crazy. You seem founder. to have made every mistake. So many, many mistakes. <laughs> <laughs> many of the mistakes. Yeah. Uh, I like to write about things where I have personal mistake experience. <laughs> um, but like, I will tell you that when we, when we broke even at Justin TV, yeah. that was the moment of like infinite clarity. And what was weird is that like looking back, one of the things I see in other founders and I recognize in myself is that when you're operating on the investor's dime, oftentimes you're trying to optimize what the investor wants to hear. Yeah. And oftentimes you're trying to structure your pitch and your strategy to what's going to get us more money. Because it turns out the investor is really your customer because they're the only one giving you the money you need to survive. And your users become secondary. Um, when you hit break even, there's this magical moment where you realize, wait a second, like I can just generate money from my users. I don't need these investors anymore. And like strangely, like weirdly, <laughs> the only group of users who – the only group of people who are harder to understand than users are investors. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. For many people, some people can just spin investors, you know. Some people have a way with investors. But yeah. for many people, investors are this like really confusing group. And it's like, well, I'd rather fight it. The user fight than the investor That's fight. So funny. And like that was the case for us. Like, yeah. and, um, it was so interesting. Man, we never had a better strategy. We never had a better plan. We never had better execution than two moments. One, when we were running out of money. Yeah. And two, when we were hit break even. Um, it was just wow. Like I, it was the clarity was amazing. And just like, man, the, and the fear went away. Yeah. It's like, this isn't going to die tomorrow. <laughs> you know, like, well, you, you have confidence. And then all of a sudden, when you look at the other side of the table, now you have a product that the investor wants. Right? Isn't that funny? Isn't that funny? When right? you don't need investment, yeah. guess who comes running? <laughs> <laughs> oh, you need some more money? Yeah, no oh, problem. I'll man. cover you guys. Classic. Classic. Yeah. Um, and I, and I think like basically the way you wrap up is like, this is about leverage. So what you say is, 
don't limp into a Series A fundraise. You need to be able to show that you have taken the early investment money and used it sensibly to create a product that people love. You need to have sustained growth to raise a Series A. Understand that, and you'll be better off than most startups. It's kind of simple, right? <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. Um, it's interesting. Like We have a, a Series A program at YC, and um, we help YC companies um, – tends to be like 12 to 24 months after YC prep for and raise Series A. And at the kickoff meeting, it's very similar to the kickoff meeting at YC. Everyone goes around in a circle and says what they do. But the difference is, is that everyone says their revenue too. Mm. And it was so much fun to be at the kickoff meeting for the Series A because, you know, you'd hear some idea. It's like, oh, I'm doing yada, yada, yada. And like, yeah, well, I see. We hear ideas all the time, you know? And it's like, yeah, okay, it's another idea. Seems cool. Yeah. And then the, the founder's like, and we're doing $5 million in revenue. And you're like, oh, oh. Ah, yeah. that's different. Yeah. And then the next person's like, and we're doing $3.5 million in revenue. The next person's like, oh, we're doing $4 million. And it's like so funny how an idea sounds better when like there's a revenue number after it. <laughs> and, and, and so what's so funny is that like, I think what YC is good at is that like, if you can create the business leverage, right? If you can make your business yeah. work, yeah. we can help you present that in the leverage maximizing way. And we can help you do a process that maximizes the leverage that you've created. But you have to create the core leverage. Like you got to do the work, uh. right? Like you got to do the work. Like you got to figure out the part that gets that usage and then we can help you package it and um, sell it most effectively. And so um, it's fun to see when that works. You can't predict it. Yeah. Like, I, if you asked me years before who was going to be in that Series A program, I would not have known. Um, but man, those founders are far more formidable. Mm-hmm. Like, when they have something, they're like, they're killers. Quiet strength when you, when you got shit. You yeah, don't, you don't need to flaunt it. No, you don't, you don't need a, it's funny because like sometimes I see people with like snazzy pitches and like snazzy, like like things that like remind me of stuff you would hear on like a TV infomercial. And it's like you don't need that much work when you have a good company. <laughs> like, like usually like you can just like uh, graphs. Like you just show graphs and numbers. a few numbers. Yeah. And it's like, oh, wow, that's really working. Yeah, it is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. All right. Thanks, man. All right. Thank you. All right. Thanks for listening. So as always, you can find the transcript and the video at blog.ycombinator.com. And if you have a second, it would be awesome to give us a rating and review wherever you find your podcast. See you next time.